let's look at our scripture that can be found on page four of the bulletin. This is Hebrews 2.10 through 18. If you'll recall, our series for Advent is from the throne to the cradle, where we're looking at the incarnation of Jesus from a variety of different aspects. And so um, this is Hebrews 2.10 through 18. So it was fitting that Jesus, ex- uh, excuse me, so it was fitting that he, God, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, it happened to me recently in the store. It's that thing that every aging 47-year-old longs for, to be carded when buying a bottle of wine. There was a time that you did not want to be carded, because you wanted to look older, well, that will change, my young friends. Because to be carded is, is in essence, to say you still have a, a little bit of that youthful appearance to you. And I have a great uh, a fun talking with the uh, cashier, uh, telling them that I have a son who's 21. Uh, but it's fun to be carded, and they want your identity. And why do they want your identity? Well, we know why, because you have to be a certain age uh, to buy alcohol. Identity is a very important thing, isn't it? I don't know if you're paying a lot of attention to what's going on in our country regarding this building of the wall. And whether you uh, are for the wall or against the wall is immaterial. We all understand that the wall is to keep people out, not to keep them in, as in the cold in the Soviet Union, if you will remember, because people want to come to this country. I have an American passport. And there are many people around the world who would kill for such a document because it shows my identity to belong to the United States of America. This is my home. I belong here. Now, why am I talking about passports and identity? Well, it brings up uh, a a chapter in our life when we went to adopt our daughter, who is uh, from Nicaragua. And uh, to get her from that country to our country, we needed to get her a passport. We needed to get her a new identity so that she would be able to come with us. We, in essence, needed to transfer her identity from a citizen of Nicaragua to a citizen of the United States. Well, in order to do that, we first had to uh, get Nicaragua to get on board, so to speak. Nicaragua does not have a a treaty with the United States regarding adoption. 
And as a result, if we wanted to adopt Maria, we were going to have to do it Nicaragua's way, not the United States' way. And Nicaragua makes it very hard to do so. And part of that reason is because of all of the child trafficking and all of those things going on. They want to make sure that whoever they are giving, even their orphans, that it is to the right family for the right reason. So if we wanted to adopt our daughter, we were going to have to live as Nicaraguans. We are going to have to go down there and live three months in Nicaragua. We were going to have to live as they lived, eat the food that they ate, go to the same courts that they went to, stand in the same lines. It was, in essence, as Nicaragua was calling the question with us, how far are you willing to go to have this daughter? And we had to answer the question, and the answer was, as far as it takes. Maybe you've experienced the pull of identifying with someone else other than yourself. You've been on a missions trip. You've identified with the people, with the children over there. Your hearts go out to them. Or you've gone into the inner city and recognized the plight and the challenges that exist there. But one could literally give all of their life and then some and feels like it's just a, a drop in the bucket. You have to eventually call the question, how far am I willing to go? Because to truly identify with someone, you have to become like one of them. To bring them out, you have to go in. I think that's why I love this passage. Because this passage demonstrates to us how far God is willing to go. See, the question was called, was it not? To become a man, to become like one of them. And Jesus was willing to answer the call, to put on flesh, to identify with us as a brother. Jesus shared in our humanity. And Jesus was willing to truly identify with us as a brother so that we could be identified as sons and daughters of God. I'll say it again, Jesus was willing to truly identify with us as our brother so that we could be identified with him as God's sons. What this passage communicates to us is the reasons why Jesus shared with us in our humanity, and there are three. Firstly, he shared in our humanity because he considers us family. Number two, he shared in our humanity in order to defeat our enemy. And finally, number three, he shared in our humanity because he was willing to stand for me. Well, let's take a look at these points. Number one, Jesus shared in our humanity because he considers us family. So why did Jesus come? It says in verse 10, For it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the, the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. So the core of Jesus' mission, why he came, was to bring man back to glory. And we have to ask the question, the glory of what? What is this glory that we were destined for? Well, if you'll remember, if you know your Bible, that we were made in the image of God, male and female, we were made in his image. And God, the Father, is not a uh, God is a spirit, and so it's not talking about the physical characteristics, it's talking about our nature, the righteousness 
that originally existed in our hearts, the qualities of our character. We were made in the image of God. And we were made in the image of God with the splendor of God for the purpose of being adopted into the family of God. When you look at the genealogies of Jesus, as you go back in one of them, it goes all the way back to Adam, and it has these very interesting words that it says, an Adam, the son of God. Now, there are many ways to honor somebody. You can give them Aldo's gift cards. You can laud them. But probably the greatest honor that you can give to anyone is to make them a member of your family. I love you all very much, but I'm probably not going to make you a member of my family, even if I had the ability to do so. And yet we see that in bringing many sons to glory, what God is talking about is honoring us by making us children of the family of God with the rights and status of his very own begotten son, Jesus Christ. Think how incredible of a concept that is. I don't know if you struggle with self-esteem and self-worth and wondering, is there anything significant about me? And yet God's original design and intention has always been to make you part of his family, a son and daughter of God. Well, it says that the mission was to bring men and women back to glory, which indicates that we lost the glory of God. We lost our position, our identity with God. Rather than having glory, we had shame. We lost our position. I love this quote by phil philosopher Peter Kreft, Kreef, excuse me. He says, we believe as if we remember Eden and can't recapture it. Like kings and queens dressed in rags who are wandering the world in search of their thrones. If we had never reigned, why would we seek a throne? If we had always been beggars, why would we be discontent? People born beggars in a society of beggars accept themselves as they are. The fact that we gloriously and irrationally disobey the first and greatest commandment of our modern prophets, the pop psychologists, that we do not accept ourselves as we are, strongly points to the conclusion that we must at least unconsciously desire and thus somehow remember a better state. We were made for the glory of being accepted as sons and daughters of God. But because of our sin and rebelliousness, what we had was ostracism and shame. And so Jesus came. Why did Jesus came? come? Why did Jesus came? Why did Jesus, typo, why did Jesus come? Because Jesus considers us family. Isn't that what you do when you lose a brother or sister that are off somewhere, estranged? You go and you find them because they're family. It says in bringing many sons to glory. Now, were they sons when they had shame? In the heart of God, they were. See, we're God's children Christian, in the midst of our sin and rebelliousness and in the midst of being in the family of God. He never lost sight of us for who we were in his heart. And so Jesus came to bring us to glory. For he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, Jesus is the eternal begotten son 
and man is a created creature who is a son. But both come from God. Jesus is the image of God. And man and woman were made into the image of God. Jesus is the creator and man is the creature. But both come from God. And in fact, we came from Christ. For if we're made in the image of God and Jesus is the image of God, when Jesus looks upon us, he sees himself distorted and broken, but still himself as a creature, mind you, but as the utmost of his creation. And so Jesus longed for us as a brother. He came to find us. He became human. He came to tell us who we were. Verse 12 puts it this way. I will tell of your name, God, to all of my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He came to tell us the message. You're not who you think you are. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. Come home. And he came to bring us back to God. Behold, says verse 13, I and the children that God has given me. I have in my pocket a quarter, which is actually quite nice because I never carry cash. It seems to fly away when I have it in my pocket. Maybe you have a quarter in your pocket. Quarters are quite plentiful. I think there were actually uh, three billion of them reprinted last year. I don't know how many are in circulation, but there are tons and tons of them. But this is what's amazing about this quarter, that amidst all of these quarters that were printed from all of these mints, they all came from one source. There's one mold that was created that's held in a special safe. It's called the type, if you will. And all of these are the anti-type. They get stamped into that. So all the molds came from one mold and all the coins came from those molds that came from one mold. There's one source. See, that's what Jesus is. He's the anti-type. He's the one, excuse me, he's the type. He's the one source that we all came from. Every single one of us. And so he sees us and he loves us. He wants to bring us home. And some respond to his call. I don't understand the mystery of it. But Jesus came to give the message of good news. Repentance for anyone who would call upon his name. To come back to who we were created to be. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is we have a universal need to belong. But you belong in the family of God. And so Jesus came to find you. How do you see Jesus? Is he a faraway figure? Somebody you can't relate to? Somebody who lived long ago that you don't understand? Or do you see him as your brother? The one from whom you were forged? The one who longs for you? And the one who you long for? The passage tells us not to embrace him simply as Lord, but embrace him as your brother. Your brother now. Your brother for the future. My main identity is a child of God. Not my job. 
not my failings, not my problems. A child of God. Because he shared in our humanity because he considers his family. Well, this brings me to my second point. He shared in our humanity to defeat our enemy. See, in bringing us to glory, he had to defeat our enemy. The number one enemy of the human race is death. Happens to some of us, 2.4 million of us a year in the United States. 40% suddenly. Heart disease is America's number one killer, taking one life every 35 seconds. Cancer causes one death every 56 seconds. Americans die in the hospital from a medical error, lethal injection every six minutes. One American killed by traffic every 12 minutes. And it goes on and on and on. Perhaps you've felt a brush with death before. Perhaps cancer has come into your house. Perhaps it's as simple as a car swerving in front of you. And you have a sense of how fragile life is. If not, you know fear because we live in a culture of fear, do we not? Terrorism, when you turn on the television set. Fears of the economy. Fears of crime. Fears of your health. Any number of fears that the television show can conjure up, which we watch for entertainment. Fear has a face. And that is the devil. Now this is very important. The devil does not hold the power over death. But he has the power of death. Satan participates in death, the scriptures tell us. It's almost like part of a job that God has delegated to him. And he's perfect at it because the scriptures tell us that he was a murderer from the beginning. He is an agent of death, even though he is obedient to God. He was there when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. He was there when Cain slew Abel. And he wanders this earth even now. You know, you don't have to teach us to fear, do you? Kids have an instinctive sense of it, right? When you tell your child, hey, just go on up and grab the doll out of your room. And there's a hesitation in their heart to go. Why? What would it feel like if we didn't have to fear? We weren't designed to fear because we weren't designed to die. But when we rebelled against God, death came into the world. And the only way to free us from the power of death is to destroy the devil. The devil, by the way, his name, Satan, means accuser. He's the one who accuses us of our sin. And so Hebrews 2.10 tells us, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. In fact, in the Greek, another translation for that word would be champion. He's the champion of our salvation. And in order to be a perfect savior, he has to suffer. Because someone has to suffer for sin, don't they? It's like buying stuff with a credit card. Sooner or later, the bill comes due. And the wages of sin is death. 
And so in the greatest gift of mankind, Jesus came to live and to pay. He suffered obedience in his life. Jesus had to undergo the same temptation that you and I face every day. But think about the difference. Remember Jesus as he was driven into the wasteland to be tempted. Just like Adam and Eve, our forebears were tempted. But here are some of the differences. The temptation that Adam and Eve ex uh, experienced was in a lush garden. Jesus experienced it in a desert. Adam and Eve had each other. Indeed, Eve was created as the strong ally, if you will, of Adam to help him. Jesus had no one. Adam and Eve were surrounded by wonderful trees bearing fruit. As far as their eye could desire, their physical needs were met. Jesus starved for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus experienced the suffering and temptation of all mankind, and yet he held firm. He suffered obedience in living, and then he suffered obedience in dying. Jesus got up on a cross, and he died for you and me. And it had to feel like eternity. He had to feel like he was lost, or it wouldn't count. And the result of that, therefore, the children share, since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. Jesus' death broke the stranglehold of death on humanity because his virtue was greater than our vice. His holiness was greater than our sin. His obedience was greater than our rebellion. It's his willingness to fight on our behalf. The holy God standing and fighting on behalf of people who disdained him, creatures that saved us. It makes me think in just a small way to another person who lived a life of privilege. He was born the child of wealthy shipping merchants and lived a fantastic childhood going to the best schools, taking the best vacations, with all the blessings that British society had to offer to the upper class. His parents died in his early adulthood and so he was left a tremendous inheritance which he used spending and whittling away his days at the card table in the dance halls of Britain. Indeed, he was so bored that he purchased a seat in the House of Commons through basically paying for the election in order to be part of the governing class. But then William Wilberforce came to faith and he began to see his life's purpose. My walk is a public one, he wrote in his diary. My business is in the world and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post for which providence seems to have assigned me. And he became absorbed with the issue of slavery. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. 
Wilberforce introduced his first anti-slavery bill in 1791, and it was defeated by a landslide. He was mocked. He was vilified. But he was undaunted. And so every year he would bring forth his slave bill. When they realized that Wilberforce wouldn't quit, the opposition became so fierce, one friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce being broiled by Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, and eaten by Guinea's captains. For 26 years, he fought for slavery. His health suffered, so much that he was reduced to being in bed for weeks at a time. But finally, his anti-slavery efforts bore fruit in 1807 when Parliament abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. Wilberforce, the son of privilege, so identified with the plight of the downtrodden slave that he gave his life in pursuit of their freedom from slavery. It's no wonder that the people of Britain call him the liberator. Just in a small way, Wilberforce demonstrates to us how far one is willing to go to identify with someone else to save them. And Wilberforce suffered, but he didn't leave his life in heaven. He didn't set down his crown and all of the rights that belonged to him as the Son of God. But Jesus fought Satan. And he destroyed him in order to destroy fear, that we might no longer fear death or the future. So do you live with fear? For the present? For the future? For the unknown? Maybe the thoughts creep into my head, I am mortal, that God will abandon you and I to the grave. But when we look at the cross, and we look at the empty tomb, we know the answer to all those who believe in his name that he won't. So when you do fear, look to Jesus. Look to his willingness to stand in solidarity with us, to identify with us, his willingness to die on the cross and live under a new master, not the old one who rules through fear, but the new one who rules through love. If you are a Christian, your elder brother who is in charge, he is the king. And your father who watches over you, if he not only gave his son for you, how much more will he give all things that you need? Jesus was willing to truly identify with us as our brother so that we could be identified with him as God's son. Well, this brings me to my final point. He shared in our humanity because he wanted to stand for me. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, what does it mean to be a priest? I'm not a priest, by the way. I'm a pastor. There's a difference. A pastor is a shepherd. Someone like me shouldn't be called a priest. I disagree with that term because a priest stands in the gap between God and the people. He represents the people to God. And I don't do that. You have a priest 
His name is Jesus Christ. And he resolved to stand in the gap for you, and he represents you to God. Now it speaks about the fact that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. You may know the importance of the high priest. Back in the Old Testament, there was one person who was allowed to go into the inner holy of holies, and only on one day, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, in which he would offer a sin for himself, uh, excuse me, a sacrifice for himself, a bull, to allay his sins, and a goat for the people to allay the sins for that year until the next year. He would make propitiation for the sins of the people, which means to propitiation is the wrath of God, to take away the wrath of God. But not just anyone could enter into that role. They had to be chosen. And they would go through a long, laborious process of making themselves ceremonially clean. They might have been ceremonially clean outside, but inside they weren't. That's why they needed the bull. But Jesus is the high priest who has been made perfect. The clothes that Jesus wore to be perfected were not a beautiful sash and turban, but he was stripped of clothes on the cross. How he was made perfect was not through washing his body, but for it becoming dirty and bloody. He was made perfect through suffering. And as such, he is able to stand in the place of you and me and receive and exhaust the wrath of God. There is no wrath left for the people of God, for as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so this is the wondrous thing of Christmas and Christianity, that I have someone who stands for me. I have someone who stands with me in the throne room of God and who stands for me. Because he stood for me, I can stand with him. I finish with these beautiful words from the hymn. Maybe you can remember it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Jesus was willing to identify with us as our brother so that we could be identified with him as God's son. If you are a Christian, this is the promise that you can stand on today and for the rest of your life. If you have not yet professed faith in Christ, if he is not yet your king, the promise is for you today, for all who would call upon him. The gift is a free one for us, but not for him. Jesus shared in our humanity because he considers us family. He shared in our humanity to defeat our enemy. And he shared in our humanity to stand for me and for you. Embrace your Savior, your King, your elder brother, for that is what he is. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of sonship and daughtership.
even when we ran as far away from you as possible, you never stopped loving us and believing in us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you that you stand with us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. Let us stand on this simple and powerful truth this Christmas. In Christ's name, amen.